Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I am your host, Jade Siri Ramos. Filling in for Carousel Baird. Before we get started, we are in the second day of our pledge fall, our fall pledge drive. So give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1, to make a donation to the station. In their annual report last year, the American booksellers claimed that, tw- or, well, claimed, they said, <laughs> with I'm sure plenty of research behind them, that uh, 2022 was a year of incredible growth for independent bookstores. And that might be true, but bookstores are still facing really big threats from soaring rents to politically motivated online attacks and in-person attacks, from book bans to not being able to compete with Amazon's low, low prices. A bookstore's resilience, adaptability, and customer loyalty are just as important as they are, or just important now as they have ever been. Today's guest, Danny Kane, is the author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, the Present and Future of Bookselling. In the book, Danny profiles 12 different bookstores and gives the reader concrete ways to support their local store and keep the industry thriving. Danny, thank you so much for being on A Public Affair. I'm thrilled. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, Danny, can you place yourself in the world of bookstores? Who are you when it, when it comes to bookstores? Uh, well, I work for a bookstore. I think that's my primary connection. Yeah. I'm, a part, I'm a part owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. I've been working there for seven years uh, five, almost six now in some kind of ownership capacity. Um, and it's been a thrill and an honor and, uh, the best job I've ever had, but also by far the most difficult. Yeah, absolutely. You're also, um, an author, right? You have poetry collections, Mm -hmm. you have a previous book, how to resist Amazon and why. So you're also trying to sell your books at bookstores. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's kind of fun to see things from both sides. It certainly helped being an author has helped my bookselling career and being a bookseller has helped my author career. These particular, in particular, the two nonfiction books, how to resist Amazon and why and how to protect bookstores and why have really come out of my experience as a bookseller. Yeah. Um, Conversations I had at the Raven about Amazon were kind of the impetus to write how to resist Amazon and why. And then uh, that book's um, success in the conversations it started uh, led me to write its sequel, which is the book we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, so before we get started, I really wanted to um, talk about a little bit about the language you used in the book. Um, you make a case in your book not to talk about independent bookse- bookstores, even though the bookstores you talked about are, you know, independent bookstores. Why is talking about bookstore in general um, w- where we want to take this conversation? Yeah, it's a great question. And thanks for picking up on that. Um, I think the, the notion of the independent bookstore, um, it's a little hard to trace the origin of that phrase, but it really took hold in the 1990s when um, small locally owned bookstores were, were being threatened by large national chain bookstores like Borders and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, and so the, the bookstores kind of coalesced around this idea of the independent bookstore or indie bookstore, and we used that term to distinguish us from our larger national competitions. And now I just think it's a little bit of a different world. Um, The chain bookstores are hobbled. Uh, Barnes & Noble is struggling. Borders is gone. Um, And the very act of selling books in a building itself, regardless of who owns the building, is is being threatened by forces like Amazon and corporate consolidation. Uh, So for one thing, um, I I fear um, that just bookstores in general uh, need to be protected. For another thing, I fear that the image of independent bookstore coalesced a little bit too well. And by using that phrase, we're making assumptions about what kind of store it is, who works there, who owns it. And I resist uh, a really narrow view of what bookstores can do. And I hope the book um, proves that. There are a lot of different ways to run a bookstore and own a bookstore and work in a bookstore. Uh, So I just, I, I, I understand the term. I appreciate the term. I don't want it to limit the idea of what bookstores can do. And I'm also really interested in the idea of collectivity, whether it's, which is in a way the opposite of independence, 
So whether that's uh, a collective ownership of a bookstore or, or book workers working together in solidarity, or whether that's bookstores banding together to fight the seismic forces that are threatening them, I think collectivity is an interesting idea to bring into the bookselling conversation as well. All right. You you said it, the seismic um, <laughs> forces against them. What are those seismic forces? Like, you know, let's sort of, we'll go well, broad and then go into the the forces yeah i i mean it's um corporate consolidation and monopolies are making it really hard uh to do what we do best and i mean that's that's represented in a couple of ways first of course is amazon um which which started as a bookstore has pretty successfully taken over the book industry and dominates it at nearly every level uh and it's it's top of mind for all of us right now because the FTC yesterday dropped a giant lawsuit against Amazon in part to combat some of these practices that let them get so big but Amazon really overshadows nearly everything we do um from kind of changing expectations about labor practices in America to changing expectations about how much shipping should cost or how long it should take to ship a book to really changing the expectation of how much a book should cost. If, if you can get nearly any book uh, at a 30% discount um, for a course of many years, that has the effect of kind of deflating people's expectations of what they should pay for a book, leaving uh, the bookstores who are charging what books actually cost uh, to deal with it and have those really difficult conversations um, with, with their customers. Um, and then I think there's also consolidation happening in, in the publishing world, too. And you see um, what was once the big six publishers are now the big five. They tried to become the big four, but the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster was blocked. But that that um, those publishing companies and wholesalers and distributors becoming bigger and bigger and bigger makes it harder for us small stores in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so that's what I mean by seismic forces. This, these are policy issues. These are corporate issues. They are far beyond our control, but we still have to deal with them nonetheless. Yeah, you said thir- a 30% markdown, which I learned from your book, that bookstores are making like 40% on what on a book, right? So you, you can't compete, right? You can't, those margins are already slim. You can't, you can't do Amazon pricing if you want to pay anyone. Right. Well, and Amazon isn't making money on Amazon pricing either. And when you see really steeply discounted retail goods on Amazon, um, that means they're not making money on that product. So think about where they are making money. They're making money off the data that they get from you and your purchase of that product. And they're probably making money off of exorbitant fees that they're charging the third-party seller who's actually selling you that uh, product. So that, that, pro- that transaction might end up with fees as high as 50% for the third-party seller that's facilitating it. Um, and so Amazon pockets the fees. That's is these third-party seller fees so they can they can absorb whatever money they lose by selling a book below wholesale cost because they're making money in so many other places uh and that's of course uh, a, a little bookstore in kansas or in madison who just wants to sell books and provide some good jobs to their community isn't interested in that kind of anti-competitive behavior we're just want to make the world a better place by putting more books into it yeah absolutely um danny can you um, so, so I mentioned at the top of the show that the book that you wrote, How to Protect Bookstores and Why, follows 12 different bookstores. How did you narrow yourself down to like, these are the 12 bookstores that are going to be featured in my book? Well, I, I wanted to, um, first of all, I knew I didn't want to write about The Raven because I didn't want to indicate that I had all the answers. I don't think I have the right answers, and I don't think there's a single correct answer to the question of um, why do bookstores need protecting and why are bookstores worth protecting? I think there are a lot of different answers to that question. So I knew I had to write about a pretty big list of stores. From there, I wanted to write about a varied um, group of stores, stores who represent um, in their own ways, challenges um, and innovations that people are bringing to the bookstore market. And I was also, um, I mean, it was really important to me to publish this book with this independent publisher Microcosm um, is my publisher has made their own stands against Amazon and they're really um, they do things in a really interesting way that's a lot different from other publishers so I love working with them but working with them means I forgo any notion of like a big advance which I could research my pay for the research for this trip so a lot of these stores are places within a car drive of, of my home bases in Lawrence Kansas and Cleveland Ohio and that includes in Madison. 
um, where I wrote about a room of one's own, and I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. that more. Being this is a Madison show, so from those kind of criteria, I picked a list of of interesting stores that that each told the story of bookstores in America right now in a different way. Absolutely, um, I'm excited to get into. Well, we're probably not going to get into all 12, but we're going to get into definitely room. We'll get into some of the other bookstores. Um, but I want to take a quick break to welcome my friend and colleague onto the program. Um, like I mentioned at the top of the show, and I'm sure you've been hearing because it's Pledge Drive and you're listening to WORT. It is the second day of our Pledge Drive, and I have my colleague Diego in here with me. Hi. Hi, Jade. How is everything going? Good. Diego, um, for the listener, I think this is one of your first, you know, I know you've been doing news stories, but this is one of your first times that your voice is live over the air. So can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, of course. Um, I've been enjoying a lot of my time here at uh, WART, and I am the Community Access and Development Fellow, and I'm part of the news department. Um, so I've had a great time working with the local news program and with En Nuestro Patio for the Hispanic and Latinx community here in Madison. Yeah, we appreciate your work and you've been doing a great job so far. Um, we're, we're here to encourage you to make a donation to the station. Um, ooh, that kind of rhyme, donation to the station. It, I like it. It did, yeah, I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot, yeah. Um by supporting WORT and by making your donations, you are able to support um, this program. You're able to support just like keeping the lights on, getting our mics running. Um, we just had to fix an elevator. You, you know, listeners, yeah. sponsors, help us stay accessible. Yeah. Um, and we really appreciate you. So if you can give us a call, the phone number is 608-256-2001, extension 1. And Diego, what's the website again? Yeah, so it's wortfm.org, and remember the FM. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to repeat it again, wortfm.org, and you will see an orange donate button. You just click on it, and you will find the information. It's very easy to yeah. pledge online. Yeah, and one thing I like about um, Pledge Drive is, you know, we always take calls during this hour. Um you know, so we're always listening to you. But Pledge Drive is a fun way to get your comment into the station as well. So if you've got a little thought about what we've been talking um, to Danny Kane about, you know, you can write a little note after you give a donation that you're really enjoying this conversation and that you love bookstores or <laughs> you hate bookstores. We shouldn't protect them. Um, whatever, <laughs> whatever you, however you feel, um, you know, you can share that on your your comment form have we gotten any donations yet we haven't yet so you can be the first do donor or yeah uh, in this uh, pledge drive we need six to seven uh today uh, in our show so yeah remember like independent or bookstores function also as like community radio you get a chance to uh, build um community and and friendship with uh the with the um, people that work in bookstores, with the selection of yeah. books there. Um, and sometimes you got to meet many authors, local uh, local authors and also from elsewhere, uh, by going to bookstores. And the same thing here with, with the radio, that you can listen here in South Central Wisconsin, but also online in any place. I'm from Chile, and I listen to Word from yeah. Chile, too. I've, I've done that. Yeah, I, uh, that's a great point. I also think that there's something um, to be said that, you know, we often bring on authors who are co already coming to Madison, right? So um, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, but Danny's coming to Madison next week um, to do a talk at, at Room of One's Own. And so we, um, you know, we are, we're integrated with the bookstores in that way. Um, and I think that this conversation makes a lot of sense to do during Pledge Drive. So again, that phone number is 608-256-2001, extension 1, or you can go online to wortfm.org. Um, Danny, I'm going to come back to you, but before I do, I just want to give um, your bio again so listeners who are just tuning in know what we're talking about. Danny Kane is the author of the poetry collection Continental Breakfast, the poetry collections, excuse me, Continental Breakfast, El Dorado, Freddy's, 
El Dorado Freddy's Flavor Town and Picture Window, as well as the author of the book How to Resist Amazon and Why. And your most recent book is How to Res- um, How to Protect Bookstores and Why, which is what we're talking about today. Um, all right, Danny, when you when you started writing this book um, and you picked out your bookstores, um, it was right, or, or from what I understand of the book, it was like within the pandemic how does the pandemic play into how your um the how this book came to be well i mean the pandemic was just i mean within a space of a couple of weeks we all had to redefine what we do and how we do business Mm -hmm. we had to make really difficult decisions uh about um, public health about the safety of our employees and about how we were going to continue um continue just doing what we do because I mean, the the bookstore model is people gathering in one place and staying there for a long time and, and touching books and communicating and having these conversations. All of a sudden that was really unsafe. Uh, so it was just a watershed moment for a lot of us. It looks like we, um, Danny, for some reason you're not coming through. Um... I still see your speaking. Huh. Um, well, I think we're going to try to get you on the phone, Danny. I think that's going to be the easiest um, situation. And Jay, our engineer, who's working on the fly, is going to help us do that. Um, you are listening to A Public Affair. I am in conversation with Danny Kane, who is the author of the recent book, um, How to Protect Bookstores and Why. And we are talking about the importance of protecting bookstores. Hey, Danny, can you try talking again? See if you can hear us. Yeah. Can, can you hear me? Yeah. It seemed like that was on our end for some reason um, or something. So uh, sorry about that. But we you were talking about how at the beginning of the pandemic everything was suddenly totally um you know it wasn't safe to do what a normal bookstore does and, and bookstores were put in a position of trying to keep both their customers and their staff safe and uh-huh. um for their staff employed right yeah and i mean that was that was like it was existential you can't ignore it uh, the story of 21st century bookselling, that was one of the first major events that everybody had to deal with. And you can't tell the story of bookselling without telling the story of adapting to the pandemic. And that's paired with another thing I write about in the book that intersects with a lot of these stories is um, the the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent protests uh, that, that erupted that summer. And then also the tremendous demand that was placed on bookstores when people were looking for um, books to educate themselves about what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's let's start there. Let's talk. You you feature a book that is in Minneapolis. Um, mm-hmm. What did you? Can you tell me about that 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 bookseller and that bookstore? Yeah, that's um, Moon Palace Books, which is a really really interesting story. Um, Moon Palace Books is is less than a block away from the third precinct which is, of course, um, the precinct that burned down in the, the protest. They were basically at the epicenter of the protests around George Floyd's murder. Uh, and I think they conducted themselves in a way um, that really enriched their neighborhood, that protected protesters, and that served their community in a really amazing way. So for one thing, um, the police approached Moon Palace about using their parking lot as a staging area for their response to the protests, and Moon Palace said no. Uh, and they used that parking out free pizza to protesters um, and and feeding them and making sure they were hydrated. Um, They spray painted abolish the police on the plywood that was covering their windows because um, there was a photo that ran in the New York Times of the bookstore that made it look like the bookstore had asked the National Guard to protect the store. Mm -hmm. And that infuriated the, the owners of the bookstore so much that they um, they made this giant painting on the side of their store that was basically like, next time we're in the newspaper, no one's going to have any doubt about where we stand. And so I knew about that stuff. But what I didn't know until I went up there to talk to them is about what they've done since. Um, and they really feel an obligation to just go to every single meeting and be really active in all the neighborhood discussions about what's going to happen to that property of the third precinct. And they think, 
um, that if they're not there, it'll be too easy for the police to just say, everybody wants us back. Um, and Moon Palace, at least they don't want them back. And they know of a lot of people in the neighborhood and they feel a strong responsibility to speak up for the abolitionist voices in their neighborhood. And that to me, I mean, that's incredible. On top of all that, they're a great bookstore. Uh, so that's just an amazing story. Um, it's a very contemporary story. It's very much grounded in their neighborhood in Minneapolis um, and in their journey as a bookstore. So I found it really compelling to write about and I hope people find it compelling to read about too. Yeah, you, so, you know, this, this bookstore, um, what's it called? What's it called again? Moon Palace. Moon Palace. Moon Palace is really put in a position that they have to not just um, say what they support, but actually um, have action. And I think you you talk a lot about in the book that this is not maybe this is like the worst case scenario that they had to step up and and act on what they what they said that they believed in. Um, but bookstores have been a gathering place just historically for movements to um, flourish and to serve as meeting places for for activist communities. Yeah, that's one point I pick up on um, over and over again in the book. And I, I borrow this point from a book called The Radical Bookstore by Kimberly Kinder. Um, and uh, in, in, she writes about radical bookstores, uh, about which I write about a couple in the book. But I think it's true of all bookstores, too, is that um, in their permanence, uh, they're really valued, valuable to social movements. Uh, and so a, a bookstore, it's funny, a lot of them are in these terrible commercial leases um, or, you know, their survival is kind of on thin ice, basically, always. But still, to have a place that has in regular hours that are posted online, um, that counts as permanence in activist circles. When so many activist spaces are occupations, or protests that'll just last a couple hours or a couple days. To have a, a more permanent gathering space is really valuable. Uh, and so you know you can go there and find like-minded people. On top of that, you will have access to social movement texts. You will have access to books that will introduce you further into these, um, these ideas. And then you have bookstores hosting meetings or, or gatherings or protest planning, um, and it just becomes a really valuable space for movements to make the world a better place. Uh, and I think a lot of the bookstores in this book do that really well. Yeah, you um, introduced me to a new phrase in your book called like the feminist book. Oh, what is it? What is it? The feminist shelf. The feminist shelf. And this idea that like these small bookstores, or I mean bookstores, but non-corporately owned bookstores are able to decide what is you know front facing on their bookshelves what the different categories are you know they can have a section that is you know this is a whole shelf of communist books right because that's something that we value um can you introduce our listeners if they're not familiar with uh the feminist bookshelf yeah i mean the feminist shelf is a movement it's a practice that came out of the feminist bookstore movement um and that's a movement that that uh, gave birth to the fantastic A Room of One's Own in Madison, Wisconsin in the 70s. Um, but uh, one practice common among many of the feminist bookstores was the idea of the feminist shelf. And that's just using your bookstore space uh, as basically a physical argument. Mm -hmm. you, are, you are making a political argument by the arrangement of your space. And this is going to happen whether you're trying to or not. Uh, even if you're trying to be apolitical in arranging your bookstore, that's still a political decision. So what books um, get stacks versus what books get, um, you know, a single copy spine out on the shelf, um, how you label your sections, um, how you organize the flow of the store. All of these decisions can be used to, to uh, create a point of view or a political argument for your bookstore. And if a store really capitalizes on that, it can become a really powerful tool uh, for um you know, change making. And I think A Room of One's Own is a terrific example of that. Um, you go in there and you have no question about what room stands for. Uh, and it's, you are just them leading you through that space with how they've designed it um, is, is them leading you directly into the heart of their kind of trans ecstatic feminist vision. Yeah, absolutely. I want to um, welcome our caller or our listeners to call in. Um, we're going to move into talking about room which you feature on the book or you feature in the book um and so if you have any comments about madison bookstores i know that we um like a lot of 
cities our size used to have a lot more bookstores than we do. So if you have stories about bookstores that once were, um, please give us a call, 608-256-2001, and let Mary Jo know that you have a comment or a question for a public affair. Um, All right, I think... I I'm I want to get I want to get the listeners give the listeners a chance to call in with their questions before we move to room move move to your trip to Madison, um, but can you 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 lay out in the book um, pretty well that it is not easy to start a bookstore, um, so can we just like maybe set the groundwork for like what are some of the um, struggles that starting a bookstore can. What, what are some some struggles that people who are trying to start a bookstore might face, and um, what are some of the like kind of crazy success stories that you feature yeah. in the books uh well I, the main struggle is money it's yeah. really expensive if i had to put a price in it's of course this varies wildly based on what you want to do and wh- where you are um i'll just say it's pretty easy to spend 250 to three hundred fifty thousand dollars getting a bookstore off the ground and that's build out that's either a down payment on a building or a lease that's filling your inventory. Um, and so, I mean, inventory is roughly $75 a square foot. And when you get into spaces that are a thousand or 2000 square feet, that's a gigantic cost alone. Uh, Cause you can't open a bookstore with empty shelves. And so just that huge investment um, kind of exposes wrinkles and divides in, in who has access to this. Uh, because of course, one simple, one of the clearest paths to doing that is just to have a lot of money already. Mm-hmm. And of course, only certain kinds of people or only certain races or classes of people can easily access $250,000 and quickly, uh, which is of course, writing out many people of color, many people from historically marginalized backgrounds who have long had a much harder time accessing that capital. Even at the Raven, um, the Raven was opened by two women, two white women, but the fact that they were women in 1987 trying to start a business, um, they couldn't get a bank loan. Um, and of course, this is a good business idea because here it is 35 years later, thriving, uh, or at least as thriving as a bookstore can in 2023. Um, so, uh, yeah, people have to get really creative. Um, people start online through bookshop.org. Um, and use that to raise money. And then maybe they'll turn into a pop-up and, tr- and turn that pop-up into a permanent storefront. Um, Janet Geddes, my friend who runs Avid Bookshop in, um, in Athens, Georgia, took four years to raise the money to open Avid. Mm-hmm. Her goal was $80,000 or $300,000. She eventually did it with 80000 in part through, um, what is it called? Um, this kind of mutual aid concept where I forgot the term of it, but um, people exchange labor, like basically like gift certificates Uh for labor. And so um, someone will say like, I can paint your wall in exchange for swimming lessons. Um, And so it was like a really, um, this mutual aid way of of getting her store finished, which allowed her to kind of trade on community goodwill instead of actual money to get that store open. And of course here, what, 12 years later, um, Avid is doing great. And she still has people come into the store and be like, I painted that shelf. I cleaned <laughs> the ivy off of that brick wall. Uh, so yeah, you have to get really creative, especially if you don't already have a lot of money. And I think there are a lot of people who are doing it. The American Booksellers Association says that since 2020, 100 bookstores uh, owned by people of color have opened. Um, and that's just a testament to the like the genius and the creativity of these booksellers because they face really long odds in getting off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Danny, I gotta gotta take a break and check in with my friend Diego, and then we're gonna talk about Madison and our bookstores here. Okay. I'll just before you bring Diego yeah. in, I'll say the connection between community radio and bookstores is real. We're proud oh, supporters yeah. of Kansas Public Radio uh, in Lawrence, and it's it's uh, if you like bookstores, you should definitely support community radio. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, what Danny was just saying about, you know, someone coming into a a bookstore and saying, I painted that shelf. That's how I feel about war. I feel like Mm -hmm. there have been so many people, um, Diego, who have, you know, I I hear them in the hallways. They come in and they're like, I was a volunteer for three years, 10 years ago. And look, my like sticker that I put on this poll is still up. And it is a community hub, much like small bookstores can be a community hub. Yeah, and you can even find them in streets, yeah. like wearing like word uh, elements, uh, and you know that they are like good listeners mm-hmm. and that they are part of this community too. Yeah, I don't. You're a you're a biker, not really a driver, but I have um, 
I have real like com- camaraderie with folks who also have warp bumper stickers. If I see another warp bumper stick out sticker out there, I'm like, you and me, bud. Like we're <laughs> we're yeah. out here, and we are um, we're we're a part of this community. Um, so if you would like to be a part of this community, financially supporting us, 608-256-2001, or go online to wortfm.org. You know, I haven't been hearing the phone ring. We haven't gotten any donors, I, I have we? I don't think we have. No. So I think, yeah, like you can be the first one yeah, for yeah. a public affair if you really like enjoy our conversations with great um, guest uh, speakers. Please uh Give us a call or pledge online. Yeah, it would it would really make make my day um, to have someone donate during the hour. At least have at least have four of you donate. You know, maybe we don't reach our goal, but you know, outpouring of um, support for a public affair is really helpful. Yeah, and like as we were saying, we have many thank you gifts mm-hmm. for donors. And as Danny was saying, like sometimes, um, as as we were saying, like word stickers. Uh, they are also a, a statement on uh, on like supporting radio communities, independent bookstores, etc. So I, I think it's it's a it's a physical argument, as Danny was was saying. Yeah, yeah, it's a a way to physically show what you represent as a as a person. What are your values? You know, do you support community radio? Your shirt, your sweatshirt, sure says that you do, and we really appreciate that. Um, can you just tell us a few of the the premiums that are offering? Oh yeah, so we have a fantastic T-shirt that glows in the dark, yeah. wireless speaker, W O R T wireless speaker, great for listening to all these wonderful shows. Absolutely. Progressive magazine subscription, Mindless Minion card, Madison Illustrated History, a wonderful embroidered patch. I want to have that one <laughs> too, and sticker sets as well. Yeah, you can put them on your car, and then when I'm driving behind you, I'll be like, you're my friend. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so the phone number again here is 608-256-2001, extension one to make a donation. And if you want to join the conversation about bookstores, you can also give that same um, phone number a call, 608-256-2001, and just let Mary Jo know that you are um, you would like to be on air. And you can also go online. Diego, what's that again? Yeah, so you can go online in wortfm.org. Remember to add FM to that link. Awesome. And you will see an orange donate button. Very easy. And you will be you can be a monthly donor or participate in this pledge drive. Absolutely. All right, we're going to go back to Danny. Diego, um, as you've been listening to this conversation, has anyone, has, have, do you have any questions? I want to make sure I give you space. Do you have questions for Danny? Oh, yeah. Have you been to any bookstores in South America oh, or in yeah. um, Central America. I've, I've always no, have I haven't. Saying. I haven't had the pleasure yet. I will say um, the first translated version of one of my books was translated into Portuguese in mm. Brazil um, by the great Editoria Elefante, which is a really amazing. I share a publishing house now with people like Bell Hooks, which is just wild mm-hmm. uh, to think about. But they have done a great job with the book um it's been really amazing to find an audience abroad uh with my writing um including there's one canadian bookstore and one french bookstore in the book um because i i really wanted to look at how other governments are dealing with some of these problems but it's been super fun to meet booksellers from around the world i haven't been to south america yet but i would love to go given the opportunity absolutely yeah this is this is your your next book i guess right yeah you get your tiny your tiny fifty dollar advance. <laughs> get your yeah. half a train ticket or something. Um, all right. So we, as promised, I'd like to move to um, your trip to Madison. Um, so you visited a room of one's own, which is one of um, our our lovely bookstores, in Madison. Yeah. Um, I as you know, as soon as I as as I. Uh, finished plans for this book, I knew I wanted to write about Room. I get a lot of inspiration from uh, Wes and Gretchen and their team. I think they're a real great model for what 21st century bookselling can look like. Um, I had had so much fun watching them win acclaim uh, from afar and gathering awards and just seeming like they're having the best time on their social media. Uh, and I had to see it firsthand and have a really in-depth conversation with Gretchen about how they do it. Um, and I left even more inspired. 
Um, you're, you folks in Madison are super lucky uh, to have a bookstore-like room in your town. Yeah. So you highlighted something um, that is seems prevalent in a lot of struggles that bookstores have is that room has had to move mm-hmm. twice in their in their um, lifespan and both times because the building that they were going to they were in was being torn down for new development. Um, mm-hmm. How prevalent is that that sort of situation where the housing of a bookstore is pretty fickle? Yeah. Oh, I'll. It's really frustrating, and that story comes up. It's of the twelve bookstores in the store of of the twelve bookstores in the book. At least three of them told me of really serious landlord troubles. Um, the commercial real estate market is a mess, and I think in in a lot of places, it makes more sense for a landlord to either kick everyone out and sell to a developer, or to leave storefronts empty. Like both of those are financial decisions that make sense, but they're not decisions that make sense for the community. Um, and and to me, as someone who's a really community-minded person, um, it just breaks my heart. Uh, like an empty storefront should never make sense. Um, so uh, yeah, in um, Room, there's a lot of luck. Um, you know, Patrick Rothfuss stepping in and offering to be, to invest in the project. Um, it was a lot of stuff happened at the right place at the right time. And I'm, I'm really glad it did. I think, unfortunately, a lot of those stories don't have happy endings. Yeah. And if someone's thinking about retiring or getting close to the end of their career and the building gets sold, that might mean the end of that bookstore. Um, I say there's no single silver bullet fix for all bookstores, but I think if I had to pick one, it would be to cut everybody's rent in half, um, <laughs> at least. Uh, and I think that would that would instantly solve a lot of elements of, of the difficulties that are facing bookstores right now. Um, but yeah, um, and I believe Room bought that building, um, yeah, I think which you're right. is yeah. the, um, that's the only real path out of it. And of course, you talk about the barriers to opening a bookstore. You also, there are the same barriers are in place for people who want to buy. Uh, but in a lot of ways, that's the true measure of independence um, and longevity is you've, you've got to own your building um, because that kind of frees you from the grip of these decisions made by landlords. But Room is there. As far as I can tell, they're doing great. Um, Madison is, has done an amazing job keeping that place afloat, and I'm, I'm really thankful for it. And I, I'm looking forward to coming back next week. Yeah, you're going to be, uh, I'll mention this at the, again at the end, but you're going to be here next Wednesday, so a week from today at 6, talking to Gretchen once again. Yeah. But this time uh, in front three, of an audience. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And on this book tour, I wanted to, to do events at a lot of the stores where that I wrote about um, to meet more members of their community and to kind of celebrate the amazing work that they're doing. So I think it's going to be a really fun week including a, a long-awaited uh, return to Madison. Yeah. Um, so sticking with the room, the other one of the other things that you talk about in your book is that a lot, we're like in a time of book bans. We're in a time of like yeah. um, reaction, um, both online and in person. And, you know, room is a... Um, trans ecstatic bookstore right their trans identities and their support for the lgbt community um, is very prevalent in everything that they do um and i you know i just saw on twitter last week that they said oh someone came in and was yelling we're yelling about us yelling to us and also at the same time we were um, making a um, a care package for a trans child. And, you know, so there's there's all these complexities that exist and, and forces um, that are being, that, that these bookstores are having to, um, to face. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about like that sort of aspect? It's a super challenging time. And I think um, one way I kind of track what's going on is the kinds of questions I ask when I interview people for a new job. Um, and, and during the pandemic, it was how do you feel about driving deliveries or working from home or, or being flexible in your job responsibilities? But lately, the, the main question I've been asking people is, is about their, their skills and comfort with de-escalation mm-hmm. because everything is really charged, um, especially for a place like Room that, makes, that, that just makes such a point of celebrating their identities like that, which is so inspiring, but it's also so scary because there are so many bad faith actors out there who respond to that joy in a really violent way. Um, and uh, it's, it's, 
it's tied directly to the book banning crisis that's facing libraries and in the drag story hours that are under attack. It's just such a scary environment um, for, for people of certain identities. And those identities are identities that Room chooses to celebrate. And I'm glad they do. And they have a lot of courage um, to, to do it. And I know they've had a lot of difficulties and challenging conversations and harassment. Um, and, and Gretchen has done an amazing job empowering their staff, uh, making sure their staff feels safe um, and, and having kind of procedures in place for dealing with their customers. But if you ask them, it's not an if, it's a when. Um, they're going to have challenging confrontations or even violent confrontations um, with with folks. And you know, every bookstore, especially progressive-minded bookstores, have faced that. Um, we've been threatened. The Raven has been threatened. Um, you know, I've I've write about stores that have been physically attacked by Proud Boys as they try to host a drag story hour. It's a scary time, um, and I just have in the world um, for people who are who are continuing this work of, of trying to celebrate queer identities or trying to have inclusive programming for kids. Um, it's, it's always important, but it's especially important when that work is so much under attack. Yeah. Um, you, you bring up an important point, right? Um, when you're talking to Gretchen in the book, you, um, they mentioned that they are training their staff of like, okay, here's what we do you know, and you're empowered to make decisions. Um, But like, I also need to pay you in a way that like the, the somewhat dangerous aspect of this job is worth it, right? Like the, the pay needs to, to combat that. And it seems like this is, I mean, it's really easy for small businesses to get away with, you know, having part-time staff that they're not, you know, they're paying not that much money. Um, But a lot of the bookstores that you you feature in the book are trying to make sure that their employees can have a livable wage um, and have access to benefits. Um, How does that play out in, um, in the bookstores? Well, it's so hard. I mean, there's just, if you ask everybody in the publishing world, there's just not enough money. Mm -hmm. Um, And you you can blame a lot of things. Um, I would certainly blame that um, Amazon's effect of kind of depreciating the value of books. I would blame corporate greed. Um, in consolidation, I think these um, a lot of publishing executives are making, you know, uh, hundreds of times more than the people at the entry level in their companies. Um, it, you blame those high commercial rents, um, but I, it's still important. Um, I I I don't think that's a reason for workers to be exploited. Mm-hmm. I think it's still really important for people on the front lines to make as much money as as they can. Um, and and at the Raven. We just make that a priority and we figure everything else out. Like we're going to pay, our starting pay is going to be at or very close to the living wage for our area and we'll make cuts elsewhere. Um, You just kind of have to treat payment, uh, what employees make and their benefits as as the non-flexible thing. And then um, those are really, really hard decisions. But to to me, it's worth it. It might mean I make less money, but um, it's, it's, you know, to me... uh, it's not a, a not a place I'm willing to compromise. Right. And and the best booksellers are going to be people who like their job. Right. Yeah. Or in, in like, yes, but also feel safe and supported <laughs> yeah. and empowered. Um, and it's like, I think that first before you even get to like, it's like, do I feel safe coming to work? Yeah. If I'm in a difficult situation with a customer or if a customer is scaring me, do I have a clear set of options for what I can do? Do I have support? Am I allowed to act in a way? It's it's like, I think the notion of the customer is always right is being challenged uh, in really interesting ways because there are times where the customer is not right. A lot of this, this is an impact of COVID too. Mm-hmm. Um, this A lot of this kind of started with difficult conversations we had about masking um, and um, learning to have those conversations with customers who, uh, kind of come from a background where they're, they've been taught that the customer is always right. And then they come into a business where it's like, well, actually, uh, the employee is always safe. And then we can talk about the customer. Right. Um, and uh, fortunately, I think for the Raven and a lot of places in this store, in the book, um, we're in communities that, that celebrate that kind of decision. And like our customers, um, sup- a lot of our customers support us because we do such 
hard work trying to make it a good place to work. And that means a lot to our community. Um, and so while there are outliers and difficult customers um, and people who will send us mean emails, the vast majority of, of our customers in our community appreciate the work that we're trying to do to make it a safe place to go to work. Yeah. Danny, we're going to take a quick break because we have good news in the studio, right, Diego? We have great news. We have uh, two donations, one Ooh, phone donation. So do we, we thank bell? Amy and Mary. Yes, our phone answers. Um, so Doug Haynes uh, from Madison um, gave us a generous donation. And his favorite shows are Melon Floyd, <laughs> Local News, and A Public Affair. Yay! So thank you very much. Those are all good shows. Uh, Doug. And we have a new donor as well. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. And from a web donation, James, also from Madison. And his favorite shows are I Like It Like That, All Around Jazz, and Labor Radio. So you can like hear many of the shows that we offer and his comedies thank you and we also thank uh james for yeah. his support yeah james and doug thank you so much if you'd like to be like james or doug uh, 608-256-2001 or go online to wortfm.org we just have about seven minutes of the program left so i'm going to get back to to danny and i'll come back to you diego hopefully we'll have at least we need four more people of at least four more people who have donated. So if that's you out there just waiting till the final moment, uh, make your donation online or give us a call. All right, Danny, I um, was talking about how excited I was for this conversation with news um, director Sholly Pittman. And she said, you have to talk about co-ops. Um, uh -huh. So apparently before I moved to Madison, I moved to Madison in 2018 um, Rainbow was a bookstore located on um, on State Street here in Madison, and it was a co-op, um, which is seems like a challenging <laughs> challenging way to to run a bookstore. And for um, sort of undisclosed reasons or um, reasons that I'm sure listeners right now know the the reasons behind, but I'm not. Um, I don't know the reasons behind. Um, they they had to close the the co-op was no longer working and a lot of it had to do i think with um changes with our university here and how books um how um textbooks were were offered or, or how how students get could get textbooks um and so rainbow closed but it did a lot of good work it was the home to the books to prisoner project it was um it was a place where lgbt Books to Prisoner Project was also, it had a homeless newspaper, Street Pulse, um, and G-Safe started there. So a lot of, you know, important parts of Madison um, were housed in the in Rainbow. And I think you had one co-op that you you talk about in the book. What are the, what's the co-op model and how is that a, a different option from a, for, from a single owner or a couple owner um, situation? Yeah. I talked to Red Emma's in Baltimore, which is really amazing. And it's a, you're right, um, a, a co-op can be a challenging thing to run, but Red Emma's has, has found themselves in, in that, that kind of rare place of being a stable, um, or at least stable-seeming co-op. Um, going on 15 years, I believe, at Red Emma's. Um, and they're a, a true employee-owned co-op. Um, anyone who works there can... Um, can uh, can be an owner, can go on the pathway to being an owner. And, and one of their areas of, of focus is um, creating co-op models that other businesses can pick up. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to be an example, um, a, a test case, kind of a prototype for a co-op. And they're very organized and very clear and very above ground in their procedures um, in hopes that other businesses will pick up on it. And, um, and it's working. Um, a pizza place down the street from them has become a co-op under their guidance, and they're working really hard to kind of spread the gospel of employee ownership in their community. It really excites me, um, the idea of employee ownership or employees owning of, of their business. I think it's, again, there's no silver bullet, but that could be an answer to a lot of issues in, in the bookstore world, like um, booksellers not making enough money or booksellers not being able to retire without closing their bookstores. Um, the Raven has employee owners. We're not a full co-op. Um, there are a lot of different systems for, um, 
for different communities and different needs. But in general, I, I firmly believe in, in employees having an ownership stake in their business. Um, so yeah, it was super fascinating to talk about Red Emma's really inspiring. Um, they're doing amazing work there in Baltimore and they're kind of proof um, that like a co-op can be a really good bookstore and a really good coffee shop um, and, and make money and be sustainable. They just bought a building, um, two buildings, in fact, in, in the Waverly neighborhood of Baltimore. Um, so it, it's possible. It's important. I'm really excited to see more and more people talk about employee ownership in the bookstore world and beyond. Yeah. All right, Danny, I think we're, we're really running out of time. So I just want to remind everyone uh, that you are Danny Kane. You are the author of the recently published, like it's, it's brand new to the world, How to Protect Bookstores and Why. And you are going to be at Room of One's Own next Wednesday. That is October 4th at 6 p.m. I was in room uh, just this weekend and they had a lot of copies of your book. So um, it is accessible. Um, in it at uh, Room of One's Own, um, and you should definitely check it out if you would like to to talk to Danny. Danny, any final parting words? Uh, thanks so much. Um, thank you, Madison, for being a place that uh, supports a radio station like this, that supports a bookstore like a Room of One's Own. I'm looking forward to coming back, and I hope to see everybody next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at a Room of One's Own. Thank you so much, Danny. All right, Diego, I'm coming back to you because we have good news again, right? We have really good news. Rolls, uh, drums rolling. Yay. We have a new donation by Ray, um, and she lives in Madison. Um, and her favorite shows are noontime calling shows, entertainment, afternoon jazz, and classical. So you can see all the variety of yeah, programs absolutely. that we have. Thank you, Ray. So we got we have to get to thank. Um, is, is that the three? We have Ray and we have we have Ray, we Doug. have James, and we we have Doug. Thank you yes. guys so much for making a donation during the hour. We have about a minute left of the program, so if you get your call in or your donation in now, it'll still count for a public affair. Um, you can go online at wortfm.org, or you can call 608-256-2001. We have some other people that we want to thank, too, right, who helped out this hour. Yeah, so we want to thank Amy and our receptionist, Mary Jo. Uh, thank you very much for uh, helping us in our pledge drive. Yeah, and we also always have to thank Jay over there, keeping the, keeping the I don't know, mics on, mics, mics hot. Um, and really pulling the show together. Um, again, this is a public affair, and we are in the second day of our fall pledge drive. Make a donation online to wortfm.org or call 608-256-2001. Diego, any final, final thoughts? Yeah, support local bookstores and radio communities like Word. Absolutely. Uh, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Up next is Letters and Politics. Yeah.